0: A little bit about me yesterday. I threw my back out two days ago, and yesterday, for some reason, it really just seized up on me, and I was unable to move hardly at all. And so I was really nervous. I texted Dad saying, Dad, get something ready, (laughs) and uh, just in case, because I I wasn't sure I was going to be here this morning. And God blessed. He heard your prayers, obviously. I'm here. I'm upright, so uh, just pray that I make it through the sermon, and I don't buckle over or grow a hump on my back or something, so we'll see what happens. We are starting a new series this morning. We finished our series on the church. And so Pastor Mel and I discussed what would be fitting for the summer. We, as you can tell, people are coming in and out a lot during the summer. So we might have big crowds, we might have smaller crowds throughout the summer. We didn't really want to go through a book uh, for that reason, because we felt like people would miss big chunks of that. But what we're going to do, at least for this summer, is what we're going to call gospel, Summer Gospel Nuggets. And we're going to take several passages for the rest of the summer, from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just uh, teach what we believe God wants us to say. And so, I'm going to start this by Matthew chapter 8 this morning. We're going to call this lesson, The Calm in the Storm. Aren't you thankful for the promises of God? Even as Paul read Psalm 91 there, I got a little bit of goosebumps because of God's many promises to us, of taking care of us, of things that we don't have to fear. This past week for my family and I was a weird one. It was a rough one. <laughs> I could share all the details of that, but it was like almost like God was testing me with this lesson today. So I felt like I had to be here today, because it was the culmination of what God had been teaching me for, for several days now, maybe even several weeks now. But I want to take you to Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27 this morning. But before I do that, I'll ask you a question like I generally do. Were you ever scared of something that you realized later you didn't have to be? We've all been there, right? Scared of something in a moment, later on you realized really was nothing to be fearful of. Well, I'll share a couple silly ones and then sort of a serious one. When I was younger, I don't know for what reason this was, but when I was younger, I had a very specific fear. I had the other fears like most people do. I had fears of dark and things that go bump in the night, of course. But for some reason, and I don't know what triggered this, I got really scared of wolves. Maybe I read Three Little Pigs or something too much. Um, but I remember laying in bed thinking, and we lived in suburban Iowa, I mean, <laughs> not a great wolf population. But I remember that laying there in bed thinking, not only am I scared of just general dark and things like that, I'm scared that wolves were stalking me. That I, there, I, I actually thought there was a wolf stalking me outside my window, looking inside my window, waiting for me to fall asleep at night, and then he was going to come in and get me. And it was a really specific, really weird fear, and I just, I don't remember how long it lasted, I don't remember what triggered it or what made it go away, but I remember being very scared of wolves for a little while. <laughs> Obviously, you grow out of that and you realize, well, that was kind of a silly fear. I don't know where that came from. But when you're, when you're a little kid, it's sort of understandable think people are just scared of that. I'm noticing that in my own children. They're scared of things that are either really general things everyone is scared of, or just really specific things, and I have to go and try to calm their fears. Uh, fast forward about 20 years or so, I'm a, or in my early 20s at this moment, and sometimes you're scared of something that sort of plagues your mind, right? And then sometimes you're scared in an instant of something that you didn't foresee or didn't forethink of. And so there I am at the grocery store the one night, and it's about dusk. And I may have shared this story before, I can't remember. But I pulled my car into the parking lot, and just going to get a little shopping trip. And did you ever get a sense that someone is watching you? Ever get a sense that someone is near, but you don't really know why or where it's coming from? Well, as I got out of the car, I, fed, I had that sense. I had that presence that someone was watching me. It was a really odd feeling. And so I looked left. My car was in the parking lot. I got out on the left side, obviously. And I'm looking at the passenger seat of the car next to me. And in the passenger seat is a mannequin. Let that register for a minute. There's a mannequin in the passenger seat. Not only is there a mannequin seated, seated in the passenger seat, it's also angled, so the face is kind of like staring at you. I'm a young 20-something man at that moment. I don't know what your response would have been, but I yelped a little bit. Yeah. Realizing what, what person is staring at me this way. And it took, it took a few moments to realize this wasn't a real person. It was a mannequin, and then it creeped out for another reason thinking, what maniac put a mannequin in their car? I don't want to be anywhere near this person. <laughs> but there was a moment that I was scared in a moment. And uh, those are two kind of silly fears. But then there's a fear that sort of plagued me later on in my life that's a little bit more serious. When I was, um, we were about to have the twins. So this is only six years ago or so. Uh, we were set to have the twins. I've told you guys that story at nauseum. You guys know that story by now. But um, right before we were about to have the twins, it was probably five or six months before that, it was wintertime. And I did something simple. I took out a bag of garbage. And this is actually quite a fitting story because the way I got hurt with my back recently is because I took something to the garbage. So I should just stop doing that, right? I should just have someone else do that. Janine, you're a garbage person. Haddon, maybe Haddon can be a garbage person. Anyways, I took a bag of garbage to the, we had this like shared dumpster at our apartment complex. So I simply took a bag of garbage out to the garbage. And I came back in and I had sort of a sensation in my chest that I had never felt before. It was a pain. And I sort of remarked to Janine going, I have this like weird pain in my chest. And she goes, that's odd. And I said, yeah, I've never felt that before. And she goes, what do you think it is? I said, "I don't. Know, maybe just some cold air got in my lungs or something like that. But this pain never, it uh, didn't go away. It actually intensified for the next few days. I started to have serious radiating waves of pain across my chest. And at this point, I'm like young 30s. And I don't really think anything is wrong with my heart, but it's a very scary feeling to have chest pains like that. Severe chest pains. So, you know what I did, like any logical, sensible person, right? What do you want to do? You want to find out what's causing that. Did you go to a doctor? No, I didn't go to a doctor. I went to Dr. Google. And what do you think I put in? Chest pains. And what do you think came up? Todd, you have heart disease. You have angina. You're having a heart attack. Your life is, is going to end here in the next moment or two. I started to read all of these terrifying things about chest pain because I had chest pain. And now I'm finding out from Dr. Google I have moments to live. I don't recommend that to anybody. Don't do that. That's not a good thing. But as I started, I started to read all of these things, all of these things started to plague my mind, and I started to realize wow, maybe I do have heart disease. Maybe there's something really wrong with my heart. Well, fast forward a little bit. I actually did go to a doctor, all freaked out. <laughs> actually, I should remind a little bit. As I'm looking up these um, symptoms of heart disease, you know, they tell you things like shortness of breath and, you know, tingling or pain in the left arm. And I hadn't felt those things up until that moment. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm checking my breathing and my pulse going, I think it's a little off. I think it was better before today. And yeah, there is some strange feeling in my arm. Maybe I do have something severe here. So I eventually went to the doctor, and the doctor, you know, they did all the initial tests. They looked at my heart and did the EKG and the blood pressure, and they said, I don't really see anything wrong with your heart. He goes, if I, I, I can't really tell exactly what caused your chest pain, but he goes, if I had to guess, I'm going to guess you just injured yourself somehow. He goes, did you do anything lately that would have caused that? I said, got the garbage. <laughs> I didn't say that because that would have looked r- rather wimpy. But... I did say, yeah, I kind of started some exercises recently. And I hadn't done exercises for a while before that. And he goes, well, did you push it? I said, yeah, I kind of pushed it. He goes, well, that's probably my guess. I, you, I guess you just injured your chest wall or something like that. And, but he didn't leave me with a concrete diagnosis. He just said, it looks like your heart is okay. And I'm going to guess that you injured yourself. Now, for a logical person, now in the daylight, I realize that's probably exactly what happened. But feeling continued radiation, or excuse me, radiating waves of pain in the chest was something that really plagued my mind for several weeks, and it wasn't going away anytime soon. I would feel it at night. I would feel it while I was doing stuff, and I just had this nagging thing in the back of my mind that maybe there was something wrong with my heart. And the doctor didn't pinpoint it, of course, but he also didn't dismiss it entirely. So possibly, maybe there was something there. And this this pain in my chest actually lasted for about six months. And long story short, by this point, I I, I went to a few other doctors, and everybody seemed to have a different opinion, but. Um, hindsight, I definitely injured myself. It was an injury that just took several months to go away. There was nothing wrong with my ticker, but uh, I don't know if you've ever been there. I don't know if you've ever done such a stupid thing to go to Doctor Google and put in your symptoms and realize you're going to be a dead man by morning. But uh, we all have things that plague us, right? We all have things that we are scared of, whether they're things in an instant or things that actually plague us and haunt us. Well, I wanted to talk about this passage today because that's one of those things. We're going to find a fear here that. Many people would face this exact fear if you were in this situation. And now I want to take you to Matthew 8, and I want to read you the context. It's going to be verses 23 to 27 of Matthew 8, and I want you to listen to the word of God. It says, And when he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? I have often awed at this passage, and there's a lot of different angles you could take when studying this passage. But I'm going to call this today the the calm in the storm. And it might not be exactly what you're thinking of when you look at this passage. I'm going to take it a little bit deeper than even what you would initially get on the surface. But the context of this passage is very simple. It's very simple. The disciples are following Jesus. At this moment, they have been called. They have been called specifically by Jesus. And now they are going wherever he goes. I mean, that's as simple as the context can get. And this is an overarching context for all of Christianity, isn't it? This is exactly what you and I are supposed to do as Christians. We are supposed to follow Jesus. Jesus. If Jesus goes somewhere, we are, to, we are to go that place as well. If Jesus teaches us to do something, we are to do exactly as he tells us to do. Well, exactly, that's what the disciples are doing. Jesus gets into a boat, and his disciples follow him into the boat. And that sets the context for the entire thing we're going to talk about. But it seems like an insignificant detail, doesn't it? It seems like it's just, okay, just passing over, glancing over this one detail. Jesus gets into the boat, and the disciples followed him. But I think this is the entirety of, of the Christian life here. Jesus calls them, called Peter, James and John and the rest of the disciples and said, I want you to follow me, I'm gonna make you fishers of men. So we don't literally follow Jesus, right? Like he did on the earth. We don't literally get into a boat as Jesus gets into a boat. But back in the day in the disciples, they did. They actually went wherever Jesus was going to go. And in Christianity, we don't get to make the rules, do we? We don't get to set the destination. We don't bring Christ along with us wherever we go. We are the ones that follow Jesus. And the disciples were sort of the first people to ever get to do that. They knew they were the servants and he was the master. Wherever Jesus is going to go exactly is what we are going to do with our time and our day. So this sets the stage for what's to come. That's a really important detail because what's going to happen here is going to make sense based on that or, or not, based on understanding that. But we have to understand, they followed Jesus into the boat. Okay, Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus knows where he's going. Jesus knows what's going to happen next, even though the disciples do not. And almost immediately after the disciples decide to follow their Lord, Jesus, into the boat, what happens? A massive storm comes upon them. Have you ever been in a really bad storm? A really bad storm. I know many of you have because it was only a little over a year ago that Wilkesbury had a tornado come through, right? And even recently, we've had some really severe wind and rain, haven't we? Have you ever been in a storm that sort of made you nervous? Well, this storm that comes upon the disciples is that kind of storm. It is not a little deal. This is not an overblown storm. It's not exaggerated. It's a real scary storm. They are in a boat with Jesus, and it, say, it says the waves were swamping the boat. Now take a moment and imagine what that scene must have been like. You are in a boat, I'm guessing not a very big boat, not a very expensive boat, not a boat with a lot of trappings and things like that, but you're in a boat with Jesus and the waves are so severe they're actually coming into the boat. So this is a big deal. This is a big storm. This is a real scary situation and that's another important detail to make note of. But we need to pause here. Because I want to know, I want to imagine what might be a normal reaction at this point. If you were one of the disciples at this moment, and you were in the boat with Jesus, and Jesus is asleep, we're going to find that out here in a minute, but the waves start swamping the boat, and it's a really severe storm, what might be a normal reaction to that? Do you think, number one, you would fear for your life? Would that be a normal reaction to a situation like this? Would you actually fear for your life? I mean, because this is an unusual situation. The disciples were not in storms like this all the time. So this is unusual, and it's also quite dramatic situation. And like I mentioned with the mannequin story, I'm not proud of that story, but fear is an instinct, isn't it? It's an instinct that lies close to us every single day. And it only takes something small, like a mannequin in someone's car, to trigger that fear. So would a normal reaction be at this point to fear for your life? I would say yes. Would you guys agree with me? That would be a normal reaction based on us as humans. Maybe here's another one. Maybe in the moment you would even go as far as to question your reasons for getting on that boat. I knew I shouldn't have come on this. I knew this was going to be problematic. I knew something crazy was going to happen here. I shouldn't have come on this boat. Why did I take this risk? I've actually said that kind of question. I am not a risk taker. I try to, I, I don't know if I'm a risk analysis, but I like to I like to put comforts around my life to make sure the risks can't really happen. So if I get into a situation like this, one of the first things I'm going to think of is I knew I shouldn't have done this. I knew I shouldn't have. Like the other day when I wrenched my back. I'll tell you the story now. I told some of you already, but I was taking a box spring. You guys know they go on the bed. They're kind of big and clunky and awkward. And I took our old box spring and I was going to bring it to the trash for the trash guys to get it. And as I'm lugging this thing up a really steep driveway, about halfway through, I realized this is kind of stupid. Because this thing's heavy. It's awkward. I'm doing it by myself. My body is now contorted in a thousand different positions as I try to manage this thing up the driveway. And that's the way I injured myself. And I realized that 24 hours later, that was stupid. That was stupid. And here's the thing about the thing. They never even took the box spring. I left the box spring by the garbage. I went out there the next morning, and the, all the trash cans are on the floor along with the box spring. And I was like, okay, awesome. That was worth it. But maybe a normal reaction for these disciples at that moment was to question their reasons for getting on that boat why did I do such a thing? I shouldn't have been in a storm this severe. I should have questioned my um, my risk at this moment. Maybe here's another one, and these are going to build on top of each other. Maybe even in the moment, if we were honest, we might question the goodness and love of God. Have we ever? I'm not going to poll the audience, but have we ever gone so far as to get into a situation that's scary and severe and start to question the very foundations of the goodness and love of God, going, why would God allow such a thing if he loved me? Haven't we? Haven't we all to some degree going, ha ha, he says he's loving, he says he's good, then why am I going through such pain and difficulty? That's really embarrassing, that's really hard to swallow, but I know I've been there, unfortunately. I know I've actually looked at the situation and come to the equation that God must not be as good as he thinks he is. Or maybe he doesn't love me as much as he says that he does. But it might be a normal reaction to the situation. Here's one that even builds on that. Maybe go as far as to question whether they should have followed Jesus at all. Because if they're doing equations in their mind, they can make this equation that following Jesus equals scary storms. Maybe we shouldn't have done that. Maybe we should have stayed in our comfortable life as fishermen, where we know exactly what to expect. If there's a storm, we don't have to go into the sea Maybe we should have stayed where we were and not followed Jesus. Maybe they thought that. I don't know. It's conjecture. But life just got a lot more uncomfortable for the disciples, didn't it? At least in this moment, they may have been thinking, I should go back. If I ever get to shore, I'm going to kiss the ground. I'm going to go back to what I did before, and I'm not going to get in this situation again. Or maybe there's another normal reaction, and maybe there's a good reaction any of us could have had if we were in this situation. Maybe it's trust God. Maybe it's trust the Lord who has proven his love for us. Maybe it's the one who has proven his authority from God. Maybe it's to trust the one that has proven his pure goodness to us at all times. You guys know what a resume is, right? You hand a resume in when you're trying to get a job somewhere. And on that resume, it shows you what you're good at and what you've been doing for the last several years. And it proves to the person who's trying to hire you that you're qualified and equipped. To do that? Well, I believe God has a lengthy resume in Scripture, doesn't He? Lengthy resume. Not only does He have a lengthy resume in Scripture, He has a lengthy resume in each one of our lives, doesn't He? And He has built that resume very purposefully. And it's laced with love, it's laced with goodness, it's laced with grace. And if you and I get into a situation like this, it's possible for us to consider that resume and go, wait a minute. Let's pause here for a moment. Yes, this is scary, but I'm going to remember my Lord at this moment, and I'm going to trust. Is that the easiest thing to do? No, it's definitely not the easiest thing to do. All of the ones we mentioned before here are a lot more easy to jump to, but it is a possible thing to do, right? It is possible to say to yourself, God has loved me greatly, faithfully. He has proven his authority from God. He has proven his goodness At all times. And I'm going to trust his sustaining love even now. But let's go back to the story because it gives us another very important detail here. It almost seems like another footnote. But it says that Jesus is asleep during the storm. This is where the story sort of gets entertaining. (laughs) Because we just talked about the disciples are really in a scary storm here. But there's another person in the boat who doesn't have the same reaction. In fact, he has no reaction at all because he's asleep. Jesus is asleep. I don't think this is saying, it's not a metaphor for something. I think he's actually asleep in the boat. And I think this is a shocking detail for the story. Have you guys ever known someone who can sort of sleep anywhere at any time? Yeah, Lou, you're one of those people. Travis, my brother, is actually one of those people. My brother can fall asleep in the shower. He could fall asleep on anything that's moving, like a train or a plane or anything. Not me. I take about 45 minutes of ideal situation to fall asleep. But some people can just sleep wherever. I don't know if Jesus was one of those people, but this is a shocking detail of the story because there's a massive storm coming upon them, and the waves are coming into the ship. And imagine looking over, and your Lord Jesus is asleep there in the boat. And it sort of mentions this as sort of a footnote, but this is a really important detail because I want to talk about now... How and why might Jesus be asleep at this moment? I don't know what your answer would be to that question, but how and why might Jesus be asleep during this situation? Well, here's the first obvious one. He was exhausted. He was exhausted from full-time ministry. I have been in full-time ministry for a decade now, and I can tell you, it's tiring. It's exhausting. Even though I'm not a great sleeper, there are days that I go to sleep quite easily. Because the job is just demanding, and Jesus' job was demanding. If you read the Gospels, it almost seems like he doesn't have a moment to himself. Even when he tries to steal away and get some sleep and get some prayer, people find him. And they say, hey Jesus, can you heal my ailment? So his ministry was exhausting, and he was really, really tired. And I think that's the first obvious thing you could just say. He was just exhausted. He needed rest in order to get back to strength and ministry. And so when he found an opportunity to sleep, he took it because he had to strengthen himself. He had to recharge his batteries. So that could be the first reason that Jesus is asleep. Here's another one, kind of going along with it. He's a deep sleeper, and he didn't notice the storm or the water coming into the boat. Any deep sleepers out there? It's almost like your alarm doesn't work some days. Your alarm has been (laughs) going off for the last 10 minutes, and you don't even notice. No deep sleepers out there? Any deep sleepers? We're all eight sleepers? Wow, Dan, kind of? You could drift off into, yeah, you too, Luke. So maybe Jesus is a deep sleeper. Maybe he didn't notice waves coming into the boat. Maybe he didn't notice the intense lightning or the intense wind. That one seems a little far-fetched, right? It seems a little far-fetched, but maybe because of exhaustion, Jesus is just so deeply in sleep. It is possible. Here's another one. This one's a little bit more alarming. Maybe Jesus didn't care about the disciples. He knows he wasn't going to die. The storm wasn't going to kill Jesus. So if the disciples did die, maybe he can just go out and find other disciples. Maybe it's not that big of a loss to him. Maybe he can find different, better disciples. Is that possible? Not really. It's not because Jesus has, again, laid before us in the gospel such love, such grace, such forgiveness, such faithfulness to those that he loves about. He is not thinking at this moment. He does not care for his disciples. On the contrary, he came to die for these people. He came to die for us. So if that ever enters our mind, we need to punt that one out right away because that is not not possible whatsoever. But here is another possible one. And this one actually makes a lot of sense according to the text. Maybe Jesus is asleep because he trusts the one who is in control to such a degree that he sleeps peacefully even amidst a really bad storm. Wouldn't you say that's possible? Wouldn't you say it's possible that Jesus has the perfect perspective? He knows exactly why the storm is there. He knows exactly what the storm is capable of doing. He knows exactly who's in charge of the storm, and he is not worried one iota. Do you think that's possible? I think it's possible, if not probable, if not a surety, that that's exactly what's going on. Jesus is probably exhausted, but he's also not worried at all, because he knows who's in charge. And so his sleep, I think, represents... A soul calmness. I really do. I think the sleep of Jesus at this moment represents trust. And this is what I think is a a staggering detail of this story that we're going to come back to. That Jesus is asleep in the midst of a severe storm. Don't you want what that guy's having? Right? Don't you want that to be able to say that about your life? That even in the midst of storms, I'm at peace and calm in my soul? Well, we find out the disciples' reaction. The disciples' reaction, and again, it's, it's hard to chide these guys. It's hard to judge these guys for what they do next because they decide to wake Jesus up from his nap and sort of bring him up to speed in the situation. They simply tell Jesus by waking him up, saying, Jesus, Lord, save us. We are perishing. That's also logical, though, isn't it? That's a logical train to follow. You're seeing a really bad storm come upon you, you're seeing waves come into the boat, swamping the boat, and these guys come to the conclusion that if we don't do something, if someone doesn't save us, we're going to die. How did they know they were going to die? It's just a logical train to follow, right? They didn't actually come short, come close to death at this moment, but they did know the logical train that water coming into a boat can swamp a boat, can drown a boat, and can drown those everybody who was on the boat. But it's speculation. It's guessing. And probably it's even an insecurity that we are fragile beings. But I want to look at this right now. Did the disciples do the right thing? Because this is a question I've often asked when reading this passage. Did they do the right thing at this moment? They are in a really bad storm. Jesus is asleep. The waves are coming into the boat. What else is there to do? Yes, you can try to grab buckets and chuck water. But you have a Savior, the Savior, the Master, the Lord of the universe, in your boat. Did the disciples do the right thing? Isn't the proper thing to do when you're scared and worried to pray? To ask God for help? To ask God to calm the storm? Can't you even support that biblically? I can. Because it says in Philippians, do not be anxious for anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, Make your requests known to God. Doesn't it say that? Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious or worried about anything. Take it to God, and God will calm your fears. So isn't the proper thing to do when you're scared is to pray and to call out for God to calm the storm? Again, that's a logical, if not a biblical thing to think. Here's number two. Did the disciples do the right thing? Wasn't it likely they were going to die if something wasn't done? If you're in that situation and waves are coming into the boat, isn't it likely that you are going to perish if nothing happens? It's it's logical at least, right? It's at least a possibility. A delay could cost them their lives. If they delay this any longer and enough water gets into that boat, that boat can go down. Couldn't we even go so far as to say that waking Jesus up was evidence of their faith? They know that Jesus can do something to help them. Isn't this an evidence that they do believe in Jesus? Again, isn't that a logical train to follow? Saying, see, they do believe. They know Jesus can do something. They're going to wake him up and he's going to save the day. And that's a logical and maybe even a biblical train to follow. Saying that's exactly what you should do in that situation. Because Jesus is the life giver. And who else should be sought out when you're in a really hairy, scary situation? But this is where we find a sort of really odd point of the story. Because Jesus wakes up, and this is what he says to his disciples, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? That right there turns this story on its head. Because if that verse is not there, this story is a great story of salvation. A great story about prayer. A great story about the promises of God. But Jesus wakes up, and before he does anything about the storm, he looks at the disciples and says, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Let's pause here for a moment. Because does this maybe seem like a harsh response from Jesus when you take in the entire situation? If I'm honest, when I first read this, I thought that seemed a little harsh. Really, Jesus? I mean, we're in a really scary situation. We woke you up. We know you're the Lord. We know what you're able to do. We asked you to save us. And now you're calling us out for our small faith? And let's just look at the details of the story here. The storm is severe. The storm is severe. The waves were coming into the boat. The disciples did not exaggerate the situation. The storm was big and scary. Okay? And logically, we all know this detail, boats sink when they take on too much water. Even big boats like the Titanic that was said to be unsinkable, it took on water and it sank. Because boats, that's what, bo- that's what happens with boats. If boats take on water, the, wa- the boat capsizes or goes under and everybody drowns. The disciples are also mortal beings, aren't they? Water can kill them. Water can drown them. And waking Jesus up, at least on the surface, seems like an act of prayer and faith. At least to me initially. Because he can save us. Jesus can heal this situation. He can take care of this. He can save our lives. We don't have to die today if we wake up Jesus. Isn't it logical to say that right there is faith? Maybe even big faith? Because they're turning to Jesus first. It doesn't say they tried to chuck water. It doesn't say they called out to some unknown God. They went to directly to Jesus and said, Jesus, save us. We're going to die. And right after this, Jesus, right after he says this to the disciples, he wakes up, he rebukes the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And I need you to imagine that in a moment. We have like what's called a Case 5 hurricane here. And Jesus wakes up and sort of yells at the wind and the sea, and it stops. In an instant. And suddenly there's this like eerie calm. The sun's out, the birds are chirping, the water's calm and still. And the disciples are going, what sort of man is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him? Isn't this a wild story, guys? It's short, it's brief. You can almost gloss over it and go, oh, wow, cool story. But it's really profound. And I want to draw out a few really interesting things here. And I told you before, if we take out Jesus' rebuke of the disciples in verse 26, this is a sweet story. It's a great story. It becomes one of your life passages of God's salvation from the storms of life and everyone lives happily ever after. Don't we love those kind of stories? Janine and I watched the other day, we watched a movie that ended horribly. And we had watched this movie for like an hour and a half. We had invested in it and at the end, the guy dies. And I'm like, wait, what? It's not happily ever after. We want this guy to get saved. and It was really a really bad movie just because the ending was bad. But if you take out verse 26, isn't it one of those stories? There comes a bad storm. They wake up Jesus. Jesus wakes up. He rebukes the wind and the sea, and everything's calm again. Don't we love those kind of stories? We love those kind of stories. But verse 26 is in there. It is in there. That's what makes this story a teaching lesson for all of us. Because there's something better God has for each one of us than comfort, ease, and prosperity on the earth. Did you know that? Do you know that in the Christian journey yet? God has higher purposes than our comfort. God has higher purposes than our ease and our prosperity on this earth. Would you say yes to that? He does, doesn't he? He has higher purposes, higher ways. And this is what I believe verse 26 is trying to draw out. I have a different purpose for this storm than you think I do. I am not just here to calm every storm. My storms have a purpose. So what are we to learn from this story? Number one, I don't think the physical storm was the real problem. Not if you take into account everything that God knows. The physical storm was not the real problem that day. All it did was reveal the heart's, of the disciples, because there was an inward spiritual storm that was going on that should have been their real concern. Didn't Jesus promise eternal life to all those who follow him? Didn't he? Didn't we just read some really incredible promises from Psalm 91? Doesn't Jesus make some radical promises to those he loves? And the first thing we find out in John three sixteen is all who believe in Jesus will have eternal life eternal life but at the first thought of death the disciples are unmasking un unearthing that that promise that god has given to each one of us how do we get our souls to calm is the question i have for us today because i think that's the point of the story is not for all the waters to be calm in life even though we want that how do we get our souls to calm like jesus was Number two thing we can learn. The great calm at the end of the story was not the first calm in this story because Jesus was peacefully asleep during the worst part of the storm. Once again, there's a spiritual calm, not a physical calm, that every single one of us needs. And I told you this this past week for my family and I was stormy. It was rocky waters. We had quite the interesting week, and I think it was sort of building up to the, teaching of this lesson, God was sort of testing me to say, what is it that you want, Todd? Do you want all the waters to be calm in life, or do you want a greater calm? Do you want the calm in the soul? Do you want people scratching their heads going, how is the guy asleep in the midst of a storm so severe? And I think what we need most is a spiritual calm, not a physical calm, because Jesus trusted God's sovereign plan and covenant love, didn't he? How else could he be asleep? Maybe Jesus could have panicked and said, yeah, God, save us. Calm the waters. I'm not ready to die. It isn't my time. Calm the waters, Lord. But he didn't. He trusted God's promises and he knew that God's promises cannot fail. Do you guys believe that? Do you believe that if God makes a promise, there is no chance of that promise failing? Isn't that a great thing to know about our Lord? People can let us down. I can make promises to you and not carry through, but God cannot. If God makes a promise, it will not, cannot fail. And Jesus knew that, and he tested that. Therefore, I believe Jesus slept peacefully, even amidst a horrible storm, because he had amazing trust in the one sovereign God. And here's an interesting thing to know, a really profound, important thing to know. No storm can thwart the plans of God. Whether big or small, whether long or short, no storm can thwart the plans of God. Was Jesus going to die in that storm? He was not. Were the disciples going to die in that storm? They were not. We know the end of the story. We have the benefit of hindsight, right? We can look back and go, yeah, why are you so concerned, disciples? You weren't going to die. Share those stories at the beginning of the lesson. Now I realize they're silly fears. I realize that now because I have the... I have the hindsight to look back and go, that was silly. But in the midst, all I saw was the water and the waves and the wind and the lightning. And God is saying to the disciples, you have no need to fear. No need to fear. And you, you know why you have no need to fear? Number three, because Jesus was in the boat. Jesus didn't join the disciples in the boat. They followed him into the boat. It was Jesus' will to be on the boat that day. So we can make this logical train. If the boat sank that day and the disciples all died, wouldn't it mean that following Jesus can lead to disaster? If you follow Jesus and the boat capsizes and all the disciples die, doesn't following Jesus lead to disaster? Did anyone die that day? Was anyone going to die that day? They were not. If we say that we trust in God and believe that Jesus is the way to eternal life, then is there danger at all in total surrender and full trust in Jesus? If we really believe that Jesus is the way to eternal life and that God cannot break his promises, is there any real danger at all in being close to Jesus? Wouldn't it even be right to say that is the safest place to be? Maybe a storm outside of the boat could have killed the disciples, but not in the same boat with Jesus. Because there is danger outside of Jesus. There is grave danger outside of Jesus. But the scripture teaches us this over and over, that in Christ we are safe. Safe from the storm? No. The storms will still come. What we are safe from is disaster. And ruin and eternal harm if we are near Jesus that boat was not going down going to go down was it we obviously see from the text that the storm does not have the authority over Jesus Christ the storm was not random that day the storm did not have the say so over who dies and who lives because Jesus woke up and he showed the storm once again who's involved who's in charge who's the boss but the only danger is being outside of the boat not only that, but Jesus is the creator of the waves and the wind. Think about that. He's the creator of the waves and the wind. The storm wasn't acting on its own authority. Jesus was, one, was the one with his hand on the thermostat. We mustn't believe that this world acts independently or that it can be silent, we can be silently destroyed. That is not true. Because nothing in this world happens without God's permission and say so. Think about that. Nothing happens in your life as scary as it seems without God's permission and say so. Meaning Jesus is the one with his hand on the thermostat. So although it seems incredibly scary, incredibly alarming, is it if you have the hindsight of what God has and God knows? Meaning there is never a reason to fear unless we are away from Christ. If we are near Christ, if we are in the boat with Christ, the storms Cannot kill us. They can make our life rocky. They can make our life uncomfortable. We can wish our life was easier. And I did wish that this past week. I wish the life, uh, the week that we were having was a little bit easier. I kind of asked God, if you could, just bring it down a notch. But it wasn't going to kill me. It wasn't going to ruin my faith. It wasn't going to make shipwreck of everything that God had known and taught me, was it? And if this is true, then the storm was never going to kill the disciples. It didn't even have the potential to do so. But logically, it didn't seem that way. Logically, it seemed like waves were coming into the boat, and unless something happens, this storm is going to be the last chapter of our lives. But if we take into account everything we know about God, everything we know from Scripture about Jesus Christ, the storm did not even have the potential to kill them. Jesus was asleep and perfectly awake At the same moment, Jesus is asleep in his body. He's alive in his spirit. He's asleep, physically exhausted from ministry, but at the same time, perfectly sovereign over the storm of life. And his calm in his spirit was a representation that he is the calm. Jesus is the calm because nothing happens without the Lord's permission. I want to read you a quote that I found from Charles Spurgeon, which I think is just an incredibly mature thing to think. He said, I have learned to kiss the waves that slam me up against the rock of ages. Isn't that a great quote? Isn't that a really profound, mature thing to think? I have learned to kiss the waves that slam me against the rock of ages. The waves are painful, aren't they? The storm is unpleasant, isn't it? But it brings us to nearness in Jesus. And isn't nearness in Jesus exactly where we should be? Now the story isn't over because there's a prequel to the story. Maybe you guys didn't know that. But if you take, your, you take your eyes and go to verses 18 of Matthew 8, I want to show you something here. This story has a prequel, like a lot of movies are coming out with that now, right? They, sh- they share a story with you and they go, oh, wait a minute, let's rewind and show you what happened before that. Well, something happened right before this, and I want to show this to you. In Matthew 8, verses 18 to 22, listen to what it says. This is right before the passage on the storm. It says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So let's look at the middle part of this passage. After a declaration from a scribe that he would follow Jesus wherever he would go, Jesus doesn't encourage him in the way we might think, does he? He doesn't say something like, you won't be sorry, or the, re- the reward for doing so will be so immense He doesn't even say, scribe, I'm going to help you do this. What does Jesus say? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Why would Jesus respond that way to someone who said, I want to follow you, Jesus? It almost sounds like he's talking him out of it. That's not really a way to grow a church, is it? If someone says, hey, I want to come to your church, you go, well, let's slow it down here. You know, we're not the biggest. We don't have the best coffee. Our carpet sometimes is dirty. Although, look at the carpet now, guys. Yeah, our carpet is not dirty any longer. But that would be a weird thing to say to somebody going, I don't know, we meet at 1030. It's a weird hour. Uh, Well, don't we want people to come to our church? Doesn't Jesus want people to follow him? This has often staggered me, too, when I looked at this, going, Jesus, why do you answer that way? Why are you telling this man to say, listen, it's not going to be comfortable? Yeah, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But I don't have a bed or a home. And if you follow me, that may be your lot as well. You may not have a home or a bed. Basically, he's telling the scribe that he often goes without the basic comforts of home and bed. In other words, before you follow me, make sure of what you know you're getting into. Because the path will not be lined with roses. It will be lined with thorns. And Jesus is actually doing what looks like to me, now that I've read this and studied this, this is actually a loving thing to do because the Christian life is not a comfortable one, is it? It's uphill. It's difficult. It's windy. It's lonely. And if someone begins to follow Jesus and they don't have a clear understanding of the cost of doing so, they most likely won't follow Jesus until the end. And Jesus is not looking for part time, half time followers. He wants people to follow him faithfully until the end. So unless someone explains to you the cost of Christianity, you might become one of those people going, as soon as the storm comes, I'm out. And could the disciples say that when they get back to land? Okay, Jesus, that was a lot of fun. Wow, that was cool what you did there, but I can't take any more of that. I'm done. What he said to the scribe right before here, and the disciples are there, they're listening to this. Jesus says, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be comfortable. There are going to be storms along the way. Is this really what you want? Your life is actually going to be less comfortable, more difficult, more lonely. Is this really what you're looking to get into? Because in the Christian life, we are promised eternal life, aren't we? We are promised that if we follow Jesus, if we trust in Jesus, we have eternal life waiting for us. We are also promised that we have treasures for following Jesus, that will never fade, never spoil, never be stolen. They will last forever. But we're also told this there will be storms. And sometimes those storms are going to be severe. And I want you to be ready for these storms. These storms have no propensity to kill us, they will not kill you, they will not make shipwreck of your faith, but they are going to be difficult and they are going to be painful. These storms are not an act of God's anger, on the contrary but an evidence of his love because God desires to strengthen our faith so that our faith is stable and that our faith endures until the end. And if our faith is strong and if it's mature, you know what that faith does? It lasts. It reaches its destination. Do you see what God is doing? He's actually, on the contrary, saying, I love you so much that I'm going to make sure that your faith is like steel. And I'm going to take you through some uncomfortable things. And when you come to the other side of these storms, you're going to be strong. You're going to be like steel. You will not be easy to uproot in the Christian life. If we take that context that we just learned, let's go back to our original story. See, the disciples by this moment had already committed their lives to Jesus. They had already said, yes, Jesus, we will follow you. And in, in, in this instance, in this story, a severe storm was sent to the disciples I believe, to test them, to see how they would react in this instance. And in this time, unfortunately, according to Jesus, they failed. They failed. Because they woke Jesus up in a panic and said, Jesus, we are dying unless you do something. And you know why they failed? Because they failed to remember two crucial things. And this isn't the end of the story for the disciples, so we can't rag on them too much. They became mature strengthened souls, didn't they? They became like steel, every single one of them. But in this instance, they failed to remember these two crucial things, that if we follow Jesus, Jesus has authority over the storms. We mustn't base our security on the calmness or the severity of the storms, but on the goodness and the love of our Lord and God. Amen? Amen? If our focus is off and we look at the storm and we look at the fear, we look at the logical train to follow, going, yeah, right there, that can kill me. If this continues, if this goes on, if this gets worse, I'm going to die. If we replace that logical train with biblical promises, we will come to a much better place. We will come to what's called soul calmness. And isn't that what we all long for? Isn't that what we all long for? Not just for the waters to be calm. We know that's not going to happen. We can walk out this very day and face a storm. What we need is soul calmness. So if our focus is off, we open the door for endless fears and insecurities. And I'll throw myself in that boat as well. If I focus upon the waves and the water and the storms of life, you know what I do? Like every one of us, I fear. I look at the storm, I look at the waves, I look at the lightning, and I say, yeah, this is going to work out badly. This could ruin me. And I'm going to ask God right now, God, remove the storm because the storm is going to kill me otherwise. Or, I can remember what the storm is there for. I can remember I'm in the boat with Jesus. His love and his many promises are the ones that actually drive the fears away and flood my soul with peace. The disciples also have neglected to remember this, that the storms have no ability to destroy us. So regardless of the severity or the discomfort we face in life, we can trust the Lord and we need not fear anything. And I know that's a really easy thing to say. I do. I know that's a lot more practically hard to pull off than to say it here in the pulpit. But if we trust in the Lord, the storms have no way of hurting us, of killing us. In fact, if we can mature, we can start seeing the storms, of all varying degrees, as gifts of our sanctification. Because that's what they're intended. Did you know that? That God brings storms into our life, not just to make our life difficult, but to make us strong, to make us Christ-like, to make us holy, to make us worthy recipients for the kingdom of God. Does anyone want to fall short of the kingdom of God? None of us do, right? We all want to be able to say in the last day, I followed Christ. I trusted in your son. I am one of his. And for Jesus to say, yes, they are. They followed me in the midst of the storms. And so those storms, if we look at it, if we change our perspective, are actually gifts of God's grace. So what do we do with this knowledge? Three things to end our sermon on that we can take away from this. do Do each of us understand the cost of the Christian life? As the old theologian once said, he said, in the Christian life, we are promised two things, eternal life and a cross to die upon. If we want to follow Jesus, there are going to be storms along the way of varying degrees, but we must learn to trust, obey, and even as the scripture says in Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord in the midst of the calm. No. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Can you imagine what kind of person would rejoice in the midst of a storm. Did you know what actually happened in the Bible? When the disciples were sent to jail for preaching about the gospel and beaten and thrown into a dungeon, they were singing hymns in the midst of it. When they were released, they were cheering that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. It can actually happen in this life. We can actually consider storms a gift and we can actually rejoice in the midst of it. Number two, We need to change our perspective on what version of calm we desire. If we desire no storms and calm waters in this life at all times, following Jesus is not for us. Just not. Because on the contrary, when you follow Jesus, the storms intensify. Life gets more uncomfortable, more difficult. But, and this is the part that we really need to hang our hat upon today, if we desire the inward soul calm, We can have it. It's what's called the peace that passes all understanding. Otherworldly peace. And we can have that peace. We can have that soul calm in the midst of the storms. Not just when the storms are calm, but in the midst of them. And we will have calm waters forevermore. Once this life is over, the storms are gone. The storms end. They never come back. We will have calm waters forever. So though you put those two things together, I can have calm waters for the rest of eternity and I can have what God calls spiritual inward calm. And I know we all want that. And the way that we get this calm is very, very simple. We get near Jesus. We trust in Jesus. We look to Jesus. There's another storm in the Gospels that maybe we'll talk about one time. Peter He saw Jesus walking in the water. You remember that story? And Peter said, Jesus, if it is you, let me come to you. And what did Jesus say? Come on out, Peter. And Peter starts walking on the water. He starts walking to Jesus, focuses entirely upon his Lord and Savior. And as soon as he took his eyes off of Jesus, what did he notice? The waves and the wind and the storm. And as soon as he did that, he began to sink. He lost his inward spiritual calm. And he got focused on the storm. So we need to change our perspective. I don't necessarily just want calm waters because if I really was honest and really took everything from the scripture, you know what I want? I want maturity. I want Christ-likeness. I want to get to the kingdom of God. Don't you? And in order for that to happen, I know I have to have storms because those storms make me stronger. So do I really want calm waters? No, I don't really want calm waters. What I want is soul calmness. Number three, Remember that if we follow Jesus, we're the ones that go where he goes. We follow Jesus, not the other way around. And although Jesus faced a lot of rough waters on the earth, and so will we, where is Jesus now? It says in Philippians, He is highly exalted at the right hand of God. He is seated on His throne. No more storms, no more pain, no more struggle. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And he's waiting for his church to come to him. If we follow Jesus through the storms, we too will be exalted forever. And the storms we face now, the ones that we really don't like, the storms that we wish would never come back, if we have the right perspective, one day they are going to be beautiful scars and memories of our sacrifice to our Lord Jesus. Don't we want that? Don't we want to say in the last day, Lord, I did it for your sake. I weathered that storm because I love you, because I trust you, because you're worthy of it. So we need to know the cost. We need to learn to trust, obey, and rejoice at all times. We need to find the calm in Jesus. We need to prepare for the storms and trust the one who is the calm during life's trials. And Jesus was the one who weathered the biggest storm of all, didn't he, the cross? You can't get a bigger storm than the cross. Jesus didn't get calm waters, did that, because he asked for it. If you remember, Jesus in the garden asked for calm waters. Jesus said, God, if you can take this cup away from me, I'd greatly appreciate it. Three times, so much so that he's sweating blood, saying, please, if you can, calm the storm. And the answer was given, I will not. You must face a storm because the storm is part of my plan, but I will help you weather it. I will help you get through it. And when you do get through it, I will exalt you. I will give you everything in the kingdom of God. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 13 as we close. And think about our relationship with Jesus. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Amen to that. And then it says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Why? Why would I do that? Why would I follow and face the same storms that Jesus did? Why would I go through such difficulty? The writer answers that, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. You see, Jesus is worth our radically following and trusting him because of his great value to our souls. And without Jesus, we have no calm in the storms. Let us pray to God today for soul calmness and trust in his plan. Let us follow Jesus with full understanding that the storms will come. They will come again. They have come before. They're going to come again. But those storms are going to be followed by eternal life. Calm waters forever. Jesus is the calm for every storm there is. Love him. Trust him. Obey him follow him, and most of all, be in the boat with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this passage. I hope this has touched the souls here. You know this passage spoke to my heart. And my soul, Father, I'm still working at this, but I pray that you'd help us understand. Storms aren't the worst thing we face. On the contrary, they're a gift of your grace to mature us and make us like the Lord Jesus, because if we have hindsight in one day, we will have hindsight. We will praise you and thank you for every way that you matured our faith in Christ. And that means storms are necessary. But Father, there is a way for us to be calm in the midst of storms. And I believe that's what Jesus is trying to draw out of his disciples that day. I pray that you'd help us change our perspective and remember that if we're in the boat with Jesus, not only can the storm not hurt us, it is there to strengthen us. Father, we love you. We thank you for working on our souls. We give you all glory for what is good in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.